Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our parable today is found again in Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 13, and it is in verses 6 through 9. Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. As a country, we measure productivity by what is called gross domestic product. GDP is a measurement that we use not only to measure what we produce, but to compare ourselves with other nations. And it is a measurement of growth or decline in our economy, which means it goes a long way in uh, determining where the stock market is going, whether it is a bull or a bear market. But most of us are not economists nor do we remember much about whatever economics courses we might have taken years ago. But we are concerned, at least most of us, with productivity in our own lives. In other words, we prefer to be productive individuals rather than the option, the other option, unless, of course, we are on vacation. Now, how we measure productivity in our own lives depends upon our priorities and our stage of life. In other words, productivity in retirement is going to be measured differently from the individual who is in the early stages of their career and striving to climb the corporate ladder. And that's just one example of how it might fluctuate over the course of our lives or even from day to day. By that I mean Sunday ought to be a less productive day than all of the other days of the week because it is by design a day of rest. Now because this is important to us, we can read books, we can attend seminars, we can take classes on how we can be more productive in our lives. And the solutions usually hinge on things like time management skills or better discipline so that you're not wasting time. Or you might strive to learn how to be more focused in your time, which is a little bit more difficult in our day of distraction. Certainly it involves being active. You cannot be productive if you're constantly sitting in your recliner watching a football game that happens to go into overtime. That's not very productive. But of course, we all do it. I know a lot of people uh, need to know themselves. In other words, if you're going to be productive, you need to know how you operate, what the best time of the day for you is, and the best environment. For example, I don't work well in coffee shops. A lot of you might do that. You might enjoy that and get a lot done, but I know that I don't work well in those environments because when I'm in a coffee shop, I tend to people watch and eavesdrop, and I'm easily distracted by whatever music they have playing there. So that's just not a good setting for me. We often think of productivity when it comes, or I'm sorry, we often don't think of our productivity when it comes to our spiritual lives. We don't seem to bring those two together because we're not trying to measure ourselves against one another. I'm not trying to be a more productive Christian than you are or someone else is, for example. We're not competing with one another. And yet in this series on parables, we have repeatedly seen 
the necessity of working in and for the kingdom of God. And we are going to see that again today. Now remember, I told you that there is quite a bit of repetition in these parables, which is a reminder that we need repetition. I mean, you watch the same commercials over and over again, and the advertisers put those commercials on television over and over again so that their message gets ingrained in your head. And perhaps Jesus was doing the same thing long before modern marketing, telling different stories that had similar meanings. And so again, our parable today is in Luke 13. You see by the number of verses that it is a rather brief parable, but again, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we are going to look at some surrounding verses that are not going to be on the screen. We are, of course, talking about productivity today, but we are doing so from a spiritual perspective. And I'm going to combine or pair a couple of words that maybe you haven't heard paired together before. That is, my title today is Productive Repentance. Two words that maybe you wouldn't think go together, but it is biblical, as we're going to see not only in this text, but we certainly see it in the beginning of John's ministry. Early on, John the Baptist was preaching, and he was preaching the message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was baptizing those who were responding to that message. On one occasion, as he was doing that, some of the religious leaders came, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They came to John to be baptized. And we would certainly think that John would be thrilled that these religious individuals were responding but he wasn't. In fact, this is what he said to them when they came. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Can you imagine if that was our way of doing things when people came forward at the end of our service? That someone comes forward in response to the message or the scripture, and I said to them, well, who warned you to come down here? What are you doing down front trying to respond to Christ? So why did John respond that way? Because he knew there had been no change. He knew there had been no real repentance. And that is why he went on to say to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He didn't want to baptize them because there had been no change, no fruit. Because genuine repentance results in fruit, or what we might call spiritual productivity. So let's look at our parable, Luke 13, beginning in verse 6. Jesus, of course, is talking and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, we begin our study of this section this morning by looking at the story or the parable itself. And the first point is the story of the fruitless fig tree. Now, again, this is a fig tree 
This is not a fig newton tree. That may be all you know about figs. But we're not talking about a cookie tree. We are talking about a fruit that is a fig. And it is a common image throughout the Bible. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis, what was it that Adam and Eve put on themselves after their initial sin? It was fig leaves. Fig leaves were part of the promised bounty in the promised land. It was listed among those things that the Israelites would enjoy when they got in the land. And so many of the references in the Bible to figs and fig trees are literal. That is, they refer to a tree and its fruit. But the fig tree is often also used symbolically, both in a positive and negative manner. Positively in Scripture, it speaks of safety and peace. Things like this are said, every man living under his vine or under his fig tree. Not literally camping out under a tree, but living in peace and prosperity and security under the fig tree. Zechariah talks about a future time when people would be inviting their neighbors to come sit with them under the fig tree. Again, a symbol of good times, of blessing and prosperity. Now, in, a, in, in other cases, it is negative, of course. In an agricultural sense, when the harvest was abundant, that signif signified the blessings of God. The fruit is given by God, and thus the people are enjoying his blessing. But of course, if there was no fruit, or at least lack of fruit, then that also signified something, and that meant that God was not giving them the harvest, and God was not blessing them. And so you have prophecies in the Old Testament about barren fig trees, speaking of Israel not bearing fruit for God. We see things like judgment pictured as fig trees being struck down. And of course, a few weeks ago, we didn't look at this portion of Scripture per se, but we referenced it. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem during that last week of his life, and he sees a barren fig tree, and he curses it, and it immediately withers away. And we said that was a picture of the fact that the Israelites were not bearing fruit. And as a result, the gospel was going to go beyond the Israelites to the Gentiles. Well, here in our story, at least at first, a fig tree is just that. It is a fig tree. A vineyard owner, again, a recurring picture of these parables, has come out to see if this fig tree is finally bearing fruit. Now, I don't know how long it takes for a fig tree to bear fruit. I did a quick Google search. And it said roughly three to five years before a fig tree bears figs. Now, it certainly could have been different in Jesus' day, but the fact of the matter is this vineyard owner expected it to bear fruit, and he has come looking for that fruit. Furthermore, the story does not say that the tree is three years old. The story says that the owner has come now for three years. So we don't know how old the fig tree is, but we do know that this owner certainly understands the nature of his job. So he knows whether this fig tree should be producing fruit or not, and he has come looking for it, and there is no figs present. So this is not a premature uh, example. He expected the figs to be there, and they are not. And so he's finally had enough. He instructs his worker to cut the tree down. Now, I realize that we use trees for different reasons, don't we? We use trees for privacy. 
That is, we plant trees around our yards so that we can have privacy from our neighbors. I don't know what you want to do in that privacy, but we do that. Last summer, both of my backyard neighbors decided to cut their privacy trees down. I was not happy about it, but they're not my trees. I didn't have a say about it, and so they cut them all down. We use trees for shade. A couple of weeks ago when we had our picnic up at the Cove Lake, we had about 270 people there, and about 200 of you were all under this one humongous tree. Why? Because you love trees? No, because it was a very hot day, and that huge tree offered some tremendous shade. And so most people camped underneath that tree. We like trees for their beauty. That is, we simply like to look at them. None of that is the case in this particular story. This man is a farmer. He has planted fig trees for one purpose and for one purpose only, and that is to bear figs because that is his livelihood. This is not a little garden that he's planted just for the fun of it. This is his livelihood, and therefore he expects the the trees to bear fruit. And if they do not, then they are no use to him, and they certainly need to be cut down. After all, They are taking time and energy. The vine dressers are having to tend to this tree, and yet it is producing nothing. It is using resources which cost money, resources like water and fertilizer, which are bearing no fruit. And that water and fertilizer could be used elsewhere on other trees. Now, there is one thing I do remember from my college courses in business, and that is something called opportunity cost. Opportunity cost means that this man is losing more than just the figs from this one tree. Because if this tree were not here, he could have another tree in its place that would in fact be bearing fruit. And so the opportunity cost tells us that the loss to this man is twofold. Not only is this tree not bearing fruit, but he doesn't have the opportunity to plant another tree that would be bearing fruit. So the cost is double what you might think. Well, now that we've had an Econ 101 refresher, we can move on this morning. Again, this is not primarily about fig trees. This is instead a picture used to speak of fruitless followers. Of course, we could easily apply this to Israel, as is done on many occasions in Scripture. But we also need to make sure that we apply this to individuals, That is to you and I who may not perhaps be producing fruit and therefore this parable does apply to us. In John's gospel, one of the I am statements of Jesus, Jesus says, I am the vine. And he goes on to talk about the branches that are connected to him as the vine. And he says, those branches that are bearing fruit, I prune so that they might bear more fruit. That is, he tends to the branches, to you and I, so that we might bear even more fruit. But he goes on to say that those branches that bear no fruit at all, I cut them off. So heed the message of the fruitless fig tree. We are expected and equipped to serve and bear fruit in the kingdom of God. Yes, in different ways and in different quantities. This is not a competition. We are not comparing ourselves to one another. We are simply saying, based on the gifts and ability that God has given us, every child of God in the kingdom of God ought to be bearing fruit for that kingdom. And if not, you will be cut off. 
not losing your salvation, but simply demonstrating that you never possessed it at all. So that is the story of the fruitless fig tree. But secondly, in the second half of this story, we need to see the patience of the faithful farmer. The man instructs his worker to cut the tree down. And in a surprise response, the worker pleads for more time. Let me have one more year, he says. Let me tend it one more year. Let me fertilize it one more year. And then you come back in a year and... And if there is fruit, then, then all the better. We, we've saved ourselves the, the hassle of cutting it down and starting all over, knowing that a new tree is not going to produce fruit for at least three years. But if you come back in a year and there is still no fruit, then we will indeed cut it down. So what is the significance of this part of the story? Well, clearly there is a reference to God here, and I might even add multiple references to God. First, I think we certainly see the intercession of Christ desiring more time for wayward sinners to repent and to come to faith. But I think we also see here the the picture of, of a gracious and loving Father who likewise is in no hurry to condemn those who have rebelled and not produced fruit. But instead, this gracious Father desires to give more time so that they are not judged. You know, we wonder sometimes why God seems to be so slow in judging those whom we deem to be worthy of judgment. Again, I've said this many times, but we always want mercy for ourselves. I deserve mercy, but others deserve judgment. And so we wonder why God doesn't judge them as quickly as we might like. Many of the Psalms talk about this very issue. Multiple authors in the Psalms wonder why their enemies are seemingly getting away with their rebellion against God. Why are my enemies prospering? And we continue, of course, to read the daily headlines, and we have the same thoughts. If God is on his throne, which many certainly do believe, as we do, then why hasn't he acted? And this parable gives us at least part of the answer and does so in story format. But Peter, in his second epistle, gives us the same answer through a more straightforward teaching. He writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there we hear the heart of God. We see it in this story and we hear it in the words of Peter. God's heart is that he is gracious and loving. He does not desire for anyone to face judgment and therefore he gives us more time to repent so that we might come to him. By the way, the heart of God is what we're going to be talking about beginning in our life groups tonight. But of course, we dare not mistake this for endless time for that we do not have. We dare not make the mistake of the person who says, I'll deal with God when, when it's uh, more convenient. I'll deal with God later when I'm older. That way I can live any way I want to now and I'll settle things with God much later. While God may continue to grant us more time in general, none of us know specifically how much longer we might have. The story does not say that the delay is indefinite. I'm certainly not trying to scare anybody. I'm just trying to be realistic. 
We don't know the day of our own departure, which is why the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Salvation is always urgent. So while God might be patient, allowing more time for sinners to repent, we need to do so now and not allow his patience to delay our own response. And thus, our story ends. But it really doesn't end, does it? I mean, we don't really have an ending here. We've got a fruitless fig tree, and we've got a patient, faithful farmer, but we're not told what happens. I mean, what happens in a year when the farmer comes back? Is the fig tree now bearing fruit and all is good? Or has it been another wasted year and now the tree is going to be cut down? No happy ending at all, but judgment, though that judgment might have been delayed. I don't like open endings. I like, I like things to be neatly tied up. When I read a novel, when I watch a movie, I want them to tell me how everything came out. I want to know what happened to each of the characters moving forward. Maybe you're not like that. Maybe you like open endings because that way you get to decide how the story ends. You get to use your imagination and decide who lives happily ever after and who doesn't. But this story doesn't seem to have an ending and yet it really does have an ending because the ending is your life and mine. Are we going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God or are we going to be like this fruitless fig tree? Well, it certainly sounds like I'm about to conclude this sermon. But as you look at your watch, you know that it's not anywhere close to us being finished. So that cannot be the case. Plus, I haven't said anything, or at least not much, about repentance. I've talked a lot about productivity, but remember, our title was Productive Repentance. And while I've talked about productivity, I have not yet talked about repentance. And so that is what we are going to deal with in this last point, the command of productive repentance. To do that, we need to look at the first five verses of this chapter, which set the stage. We've looked at the story, but actually the, the crucial point to this story comes before the story begins. So look with me at the first five verses of Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's the, the key to this story. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He gives us two examples here, examples that we know nothing else about from other scriptures or even from Jewish history. The first involved a a massacre of worshipers at the hands of Pilate. Their blood mixed with the sacrifices means that they were worshiping when this happened and their blood mixed with the sacrifices that they were offering to God and the blood flowed together. 
And while we know nothing else about this event, we certainly know enough about Pilate's character to say that this is not out of character when it comes to Pilate. The second was a natural disaster. A tower fell and killed 18 people. And again, while we know nothing else about this, we know that it's certainly not out of out of the realm of possibility. I mean, even in our own day with great advances in technology and equipment, we still occasionally have buildings or structures that collapse and kill individuals. But the story, of course, is not the focal point. The focal point is the attitude of the, or mindset of those who are alive that Jesus is talking to. You see, when tragedy strikes, be it violence at the hands of someone or a natural disaster, and certainly we know that such tragedies are unfortunately numerous, we read about them every week. No doubt you followed the two acts of violence just this past week across our state in Memphis. And of course, you also realize that today is the anniversary of one of the most severe acts of terrorism ever committed against this nation. But when these types of things occur, we want answers. Even though we know that we'll never have all of the answers, we, we want to get as many answers as we possibly can. We want to know why this occurred, what led up to all of this, and of course, how we might prevent it in the future. But if we're honest, sometimes we even have more questions than that. A question that we know not to voice or put on social media but a question that might come to our minds nevertheless. Did they do something that made them deserving of such a fate? Now hear me very clearly. I am not saying that's the case. I'm not saying that those two examples in Memphis or any other example that you might think of, that anybody deserved what they got. I'm simply acknowledging that sometimes we think it because we want to have a cause and effect we want to know the, the simple linear description that this caused that. Because I think if we can come to a cause and effect, then we're comforted in knowing that maybe it's not going to happen to me because it's not as random as we might have thought. When in fact, deep down, we know it is very random sometimes. I bring all of that up because while we may not voice that question in our day, they did voice it in Jesus's day. Because it was the overriding idea. It was not only the thought in people's mind, but it is what they verbalized on a regular basis. This, this question of, did they do something to, to deserve what they got? This was the default assumption in the minds of the people to whom Jesus is speaking in our text. Which is why he says, do you really think that they were somehow worse than you? I mean, do you honestly believe that this happened to them because they were worse sinners than, than you are? I mean, wasn't this the thinking that we see with Job's friends? When Job faced all of these calamities, Job's friends came to him over and over and over again with the same message. Job, there is some sin in your life that is the cause of this, and therefore you need to repent. They had no mind to think of any other option. Listen to a question some disciples asked Jesus on one occasion, and you'll hear the same underlying assumption. 
They came to Jesus with a question about a man who was born blind. And here's the question they asked Jesus. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you hear what they're saying? There's no other option. Someone sinned causing this blindness. We simply don't know who it is. But of course, Jesus answered by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was done for the glory of God. So here too, he is confronting their self-righteousness. You think you are better than those who face these tragedies? You comfort yourself in thinking that your righteousness will protect you from harm? No, he says, you also likewise must repent. So I want to take the rest of our time to talk about what genuine, genuine repentance is and how genuine repentance should result when it is genuine in fruit. Now, when we think about repentance, we often think only about the initial step in coming to faith in Christ. We think about the fact that we are convicted of our sins. We come to terms with the fact that Jesus is the only Savior. And we know that we must repent, that is, we turn away from our sins, and we must then turn to, to Christ uh, as the answer to our sins. And that's what both John and Jesus were talking about at the beginning of their ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But sometimes that's the only way we think about repentance. And so when I talk to you who are largely believers, and I'm talking about repentance, you might be thinking to yourself, but I'm not lost. But you still need to repent. Did you know in John's uh, revelation, the chapters two and three, when Jesus is talking to the seven churches, five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation are told they need to repent. So repentance is not just for the lost, it is for the saved. It is for the Christian who needs to be continually sanctified. And that is why Martin Luther famously said in his 95 Theses, the first of his 95 Theses, telling you how important he thought this was, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he was talking about the fact that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. I'm reading a book right now, a biography on Ulrich Zwingli. He's the Swiss version of Luther, though Zwingli would not be happy with me saying that. But he said very much the same thing. He said the whole of the Christian life is penance. Another word essentially for repentance. So no matter how long you've been a believer, there is a continual need to acknowledge our sin as opposed to ignoring it or justifying it or even laughing it off. After all, God will forgive us. We repent, though we do know that God is gracious and merciful to forgive us of our sins. And so what does a repentance look like? I'm sorry that I've offended you. I'm sorry if I've offended anyone. That's the way it's used these days. That's the way every public apology goes, which of course we know is not a real substance of apology. Is repentance feeling sorry for ourselves that we got caught and are, are going to face the consequences and so we are trying to minimize those? Well, first of all, I would say that repentance has an intellectual element to it. That is, it does come from our minds. In fact, the major word that is used for repentance, there are multiple, but the major word that is translated repentance or repent has at its core the idea of a change of mind. 
We are agreeing with God that our sin is sin. That's what confession is. And we are changing our mind about that so that we are turning and going in a different direction. David famously talked to us about repentance when he said to God, when confronted with his sin, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. David was not trying to minimize the fact that his sin impacted many more people. He was simply acknowledging that the, the priority, that our sin is first and foremost against a holy and righteous God. But I will also acknowledge that there is an emotional aspect of repentance, as long as you let me explain that. I do not mean that there must be tears, though tears are certainly appropriate. They can be a legitimate expression of repentance. We see that in Peter. On the night that he denied Christ, he went out and wept bitterly. But we also know that tears can be faked. So what I mean by the emotional aspect of repentance is a, a godly sorrow and remorse that it grieves us that we have sinned against God. Again, not because we got caught, not because we are going to suffer the consequences, but merely because we have sinned against God, even if nobody else knows about it, even if nobody has any idea of the sin that we've committed, we know we've done it, and therefore we are grieved and sorrowful because we have committed this sin against such a loving and gracious God. Finally, there is a volitional aspect to repentance, which means there is a desire and a will to change. Again, repentance is a change of mind, but it's not just a change of mind. It is a change of mind that results in a change of action. That's why this sermon is called productive repentance. Genuine repentance is going to produce fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never struggle with the same sin again. We are all too painfully aware of that, that we do have sins in our lives that we may genuinely repent of and yet fall prey to again and again. But we ought to have a desire to overcome that sin and in the process be pleading with God for the strength to do just that. I've had situations in the past where someone has said they've repented of something, but they've not shown any outward signs of any change at all. So is repentance merely a, a repeating of those words? I repent? No. Repentance is much more than that. Again, let's go back to what John said to those Pharisees and Sadducees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now again, this is one of those sermons that I'm confident applies to all of us. And equally so, if you're not a believer here this morning, that is, you've never repented of your sin and by faith trusted in Christ, then the call is to you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You need to repent in order to find salvation. But if you've already done that, as I'm sure many of us have, and you've been a believer for a few months or many years, we still need to repent. Instead, many of us have grown accustomed to our sins, even justifying or laughing about them. And because of that, we need to hear the message of this parable too. Because the whole of the Christian life is to be about repenting of our sins because we don't desire to sin against a holy God. And unless we do that, 
we will all likewise perish. Sobering words indeed. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God who says to us, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray you'd forgive us when we have become flippant about sin. When we have presumed upon your grace and your mercy, when we've just nonchalantly said, well, God will forgive me. And we've forgotten that our sin ought to grieve us because we've sinned against a loving and gracious God. Convict us, whether we're unbelievers or longtime believers, convict us of our sin. Help us understand what genuine repentance is and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.